Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we get started, uh, I've got a fun little plug for you guys. Really. Hey, guys. Yes, Ben? Due to a hilarious mishap involving a banana peel and a sharp blow to the head from a pineapple, I have amnesia. Oh, no. Oh, no. Apparently, we're going to be running a podcast conference called Intelligent Speech on a thing called the Internet, but I don't remember anything about it. Could you bring me up to speed? Oh, well, that seems like an unlikely conceit, but sure. Intelligent Speech is an online conference that connects thoughtful online content creators with their community in an intense one-day online event. This is our fifth year conducting the conference and our fourth running the conference online. Our event this year will be taking place November 4th from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. EST. The conference is a three-ring circus of content with around 24 hours of live presentations and roundtables happening in four digital rooms. Each session has 20 minutes of content and plenty of time for questions from the devoted audiences. There are also three keynote speakers, Sebastian Major of Our Fake History, Daniele Bolelli of History on Fire, and Rebecca Larson of Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Wow, that sounds intense. What if two people are like her presenting at the same time? Or I get a pie in the face and can't make it. Well, good news. The entire event will be recorded for ticket holders to view later at their leisure. Wait, pie? Hold on, hold on. A ticket. How do I get one of those? Easy. Just go to our website at intelligentspeechonline.com, go to the tickets page, and buy a ticket today. There's a link in the show notes, of course. What? The tickets are $30, but we are running an early bird special where the tickets are only $20. And even better, as a listener to this show, you will be able to get an additional 10% off by using the coupon code they will provide you in the show notes or in a minute. What an amazing deal! Then, was this just an elaborate ploy to get us to read an ad? Quite likely. So go to intelligentspeechonline.com and get your ticket today. The host of this podcast will be there. So yes, that's right. I'm doing intelligent speech yet again. And uh, for all you lovely people, uh, you can get in with uh, with the ticket code W2W. That's W2W. Uh, links in the show notes. Once again, this month, we have many fine people worthy of honor and praise. First up, we have Anna, who shall be known from henceforward as Lady Anna, the Average Analyst. Up next, we've got Jeffrey, who shall be known as Viscount Jeffrey, the Just Justiciar. Then Hans, who shall be known as Duke Hans, the Heroic Herald. Ed, shall be known as Earl Ed, the Educated Edifier. Up next, we have Richard, whose worthy deeds for the kingdom 
has earned him the honorific Sir Richard the Remarkable Routier. Finally, we have Brendan, who shall be known from henceforward as Abbot Brendan, the brilliant builder of bold buttresses. Thank you very much to Anna, Jeffrey, Hans, Ed, Richard, and Brendan. Their donations keep the lights on and keep the, me going. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, thank you all so much. Um, we've finished the Kickstarter goal, which means that not that I am without debts, but that those debts are survivable. Uh, so everyone who's on Patreon, please keep doing that. Uh, any of you out there who feel able to do Patreon or PayPal or whatever, uh, it's still useful and appreciated. Uh, I will say, though, that I am going to shut down the GoFundMe soon. Uh, I need to figure out how to do that. But um, the great thing about GoFundMe is it pays me out when the donations come in. So that's pretty cool. Um, in any case, uh, I appreciate you all so, so much. Um, I did... I don't know if I really thought it was gonna do the whole thing, uh, but it did, and, uh, you guys are great. Um, this year would have been, um, I don't know what I would have done this year without you guys. Uh, so, thank you all so, so much, and, um, here's, here's an episode, um, it's not a standard episode, so there's not going to be an introductory quote. Uh, but there is a standard episode in the works. It's about 60% written. Um, I'm to the point where I need to start doing revisions and stuff like that, adding some depth and things. Uh, but it is, it is pretty close. Uh, and in the meantime, I've got this, which I think you'll all enjoy. Uh, I had a good time making it anyway. So, without further ado... The episode, without an introductory quote. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the wars of the Reformation. And I'm Marco Capelli of Storia d'Italia, obviously. <laughs> this is episode 91, A Chat with Marco. Over the last few episodes of Wittenberg to Westphalia, I've been covering the development of the city of Rome in the early Middle Ages, particularly in the 6th to 8th centuries. This is all serving as an introduction to the investiture controversy, but before we get to that, it turns out that one of my colleagues and friends from the History Podcasters Discord channel, Marco Capelli, has been working on this period as well, and is something of an expert, and uh, we thought it would be fun to have a chat about this period and maybe discuss a few of the outstanding topics that uh, the two of us thought would be fun to, fun to chat about and fill it, flesh out the picture a bit. Also, it's just fun for the two of us to chat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In reality, we were just uh, looking for an excuse to, to, to talk to each other about this, this period we are so passionate about. Now, this is normally where I would say you should all go listen to Marco's podcast, but there is a twist here. Uh, Marco is <laughs> the host of a show called Story d'Italia, and as the name implies, it's a history of Italy in Italian. Um, 
<laughs> so if you're a native speaker or you're interested or you're learning Italian because you know there's a lot of people that listen to my podcast they're not they don't speak Italian perfectly but they use it to learn history and Italian at yeah, the same time it's a great way to do it two for the price of one <laughs> and the price is still zero so anyways <laughs> yeah so uh, also you've uh, you've written a couple of books at this point yeah, yeah. I wrote a book about the crisis of the third century. It's called Per un pugno di barbari for a fistful of barbarians. <laughs> so, of course, here there's the Sergio Leone, not Leone, not Leone, oh, Leone. Oh, anyway, Sergio Leone reference, of course. Um, and then I wrote uh, Il miglior nemico di Roma, the best enemy of Rome. Like, again, trying to play a little bit, you're the best friend or, or the worst enemy, you're the best enemy. The frenemy, I shall <laughs> say, probably in English, uh, of Rome, which is actually about the gods. Oh, okay. So the especially the Visigoths. Cool. And then you've got one in process right now about um, the U.S. Civil War, I believe. Yeah, I did. Because there's a, there's a company called Storytel. It's basically competitor to Audible. I know it's not very common in the US. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they commissioned uh, a podcast in, in Italian, again, mm-hmm. of course. And, you know, I, and I had the freedom to choose a topic. So I thought, ah, US Civil War is something that Italians don't know very well. And I'm very passionate about uh, American history, oh, actually. Okay. So, so I said, okay, I can, I can uh, do something I love and get paid for it. So it's <laughs> that's always the best it's thing. Fantastic. <laughs> so you like American history, and you've done uh, late Roman Empire stuff. Um, what are your general areas of specialty? Yeah. So in in reality, the area that my podcast covers uh, starts with Constantine and goes ever forward. And I'm now at the time in the seventh century. And in general, the, my specialization has always been uh, late antiquity. So that's the area I'm most passionate about. And then as I go forward, I got to get very excited about uh, the high middle age, you know, the early middle ages. So, uh, so that period of time until Charlemagne is, is, is really something that where I live in okay. right now. Yeah. Uh, and in general, I must say, I know Italian history more or less <laughs> every period. Some period more, some period less, but uh, the, the Italian history I know pretty well. Yeah, I, I definitely, um, you know, obviously I started this project uh, intending to talk about the early modern period, and now I find myself something of an expert in medieval history. So <laughs> indeed, indeed, it's fantastic. You wanted to go, in, you know, Wittenberg to Westphalia, and of course, I know that this is a running joke among your <laughs> listeners. I know, but it's I find it very fascinating. So I've been listening to your podcast, mm-hmm. and I find it your approach to to you know I'll get there one day. Uh, but you know, I'm on a road now. I feel like you are a bit like, you know, Bilbo, uh, <laughs> that takes off from, from the Shire and says, it's dangerous to be on a road. You never know where it leads, right. you know, and it's, it's dangerous to start a podcast. You never know <laughs> where the road leads you. And yeah. so, you know, I, I, when I started the podcast, I bought the book of, um, you know, Procopius, mm-hmm. uh, all the wars of Procopius, which I wanted to, you know, I said, okay, I need to read this one first because I'm going to cover this mm-hmm. soon. 
And then I covered it four years later. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think you can yeah. relate to that. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, the, the way I usually operate is that I, I sort of have questions in my mind that I don't have a good answer to. And so I, I sit down and start researching them. And then, you know, that ends up being the road. And wherever it takes me, I record that. And um, to look ahead for the listeners, the, the big research question that I started out with, you know, when I sat down is, you know, all right, so there's all sorts of stuff to talk about with the the early modern period and everything and the Thirty Years' War. But when you sat down, when I sat down, it's like, okay, so we have, at the end of the war, we've got the Holy Roman Empire, which is Catholic, fighting against the Protestants and the French, which are Catholic. And the Pope is sort of on the French side with the Protestants. So, what? Yeah, how, how, how that happened? Exactly. How that happened? And so, right. The main, most of my show is about answering that question. That question. How How is that possible? Indeed. And the roots are in this time yeah. period that you're covering, because it's when the, because it, actually the popes were a mostly religious role right. at the beginning and for many centuries. Mm -hmm. But then in the period that you have covered, they become this temporal rule. So now they have some of, some competing needs. Yeah. Uh, that, that come from their pastoral role and their role as a head of state. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes they go uh, hand in hand, sometimes they don't. <laughs> <laughs> and they certainly set up an international opposition with uh, the the main powerhouses of Europe in, in certain senses. So, And sometimes even for very petty reason, oh, like absolutely. for example, they organized a league against Venice, <laughs> uh, the, league, the League of Cambrai. Yes. For Ravenna. It was all about one city that, that again, because of this reason that we are learning now, mm -hmm. no? the why Ravenna is so important. If you look at it now, it's such a small, insignificant city, mm -hmm. but it is the seat of empire. Right. So Venice wants to conquer Ravenna. No, no, absolutely. We will organize an alliance of all <laughs> Europe against Venice because of that. You know, it's it, 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 and you can't explain it yeah. unless you look back as you are doing. And the the War of the League of Cambrai happened like right before everything kicked off with Martin Luther and, and everything, and um, so it completely messes up the geopolitics and it led right into um this is where i haven't done my research in like four years because i've been focusing on the middle ages but uh well well you're gonna cover it in in, in 200 episodes yeah. probably <laughs> so it's okay you can also cut it yeah or you can keep it and say that you cut yes. it you know like <laughs> like rob and jamie do yes <laughs> <laughs> So, well, so speaking of research questions that uh, to drive conversation, I, uh, I wrote down a couple for today that we can just sort of chat around. And uh, I think that's sort of the plan. So there's sort of two big questions that around this era that I haven't covered yet, and I'm probably not going to get to cover in any kind of detail. So I mm -hmm. figured we could uh, we could talk about this. So the first one is uh, whatever happened to the Senate? <laughs> Ah, yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting, right? So the so first of all, to answer that question is what is the Senate? So okay. what is the Senate in the late Roman Empire? The Senate in the late Roman Empire is is basically the seat of a class 
it's a social class. Mm -hmm. And it is the class of, of the biggest, um, uh, in, in, a, in a way, the, the, the largest landowners of the empire. And there's two senates, right? One in the West and one in the East, sure. like anything else. So, of course, the Senate in Rome is the OG, uh, <laughs> but, but you, you know, and the Senate in Constantinople is always a little bit, look, look, looked a bit down by the senators in Rome. If you read the history books written a few decades ago, they will tell you that the Senate had lost all its powers. Um, right now, the, in, the idea of uh, many historians is that they, they have reevaluated that because we see, especially in the late empire, as the role of emperor becomes more and more militarized, uh, the Senate actually regains powers. Hmm. Now, it, it's not a democratic institution of any sort. Right. They don't decide anything. <laughs> in the Senate, you do not uh, vote, for example. Uh, you know, when the when the people are, you know, the laws arrive, they they upload <laughs> the new laws. They they don't they don't vote, but it is an important center of power, mm -hmm. and this important center of power, uh, the the authorities of the later Roman Empire in the West, they need to negotiate with them because they have the poor's. They they pay with their taxes the entire infrastructure. Sure, yeah, and. And we can see that in Stilicho time, where he, Stilicho, of course, one of the great generalissimo, that's an Italian word for it, by, by the way, <laughs> late Roman Empire of generalissimo goes there and negotiates. I'm doing this introduction to set it up, you know, I'll, I'll answer eventually, I promise. So he goes to, to the Senate to ask the authorization to negotiate with uh, Alaric, for example, mm -hmm. and pay Alaric. Uh, so that's kind of... Uh, the power, and when actually the, there's no more emperors in the West, the Senate is still there. So, and I think this you have already covered, mm -hmm. uh, under Odoacer and Theodoric, uh, the first uh, uh, true kings of Italy. Theodoric probably could be considered the very first king of Italy. Sure. The Senate is a clear center of power in Rome. In Ravenna, you have... The government, mm -hmm. basically. <laughs> you have the prime minister. I, I tend to, to explain this. I tend to use this example. The emperor at this time is a bit like the president of the, of, of the republic or a king. Mm -hmm. Like uh, with formal powers and a, an important moral authority, an important symbol of the unity of the country. Mm -hmm. But the guy that is running the show is the prime minister, which is the king, King Theodoric. And he has his go government. And then the Congress, the Parliament, is in Rome, and they have a lot of power. So you think, where did they go? You know, and these senators, we know they have, we know many of their names. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I give you an example in the Colosseum. Uh, at the time of Duasser, they remade the Colosseum because it was still used for entertainment. They weren't doing the gladiatorial games anymore because those were forbidden. But they were doing other games, uh, also with beasts and other kind of games. And they remade the seats. And we have actually, because of course it's the last time it was renovated, right. we had names written <laughs> on the, you know, in the main the main seat, like you will do today when you buy a box uh, at an opera theater. Right. No? <laughs> uh, so we know that, and we know them because they become consuls. Now, what are the consuls of the later Roman Empire? You have one consul for each 
half of the empire. Okay. And basically, it's like a, a way of giving the maximum visibility for a powerful, important figure of the senatorial class, almost always senatorial class, mm -hmm. and telling them, you are really special for one year. <laughs> it's the maximum honor, right? right? It's the maximum honor you can give short of becoming emperor. So... Uh, so we know the names of all these big senatorial families. We even know a bit their income oh, because okay. uh, Olympiod Olympiodorus, author in the fifth century, tells us, uh, you know, how much they made. Oh, okay. And, uh, and they were, of course, divided into different kind of levels. He divides in three classes of senators. Right. And the amount that the top class of senators made is obscene. Right. No, we are talking about uh, Jeff Bezos levels, <laughs> like uh, like ca country size level of income. Right. So in the West, they were extremely powerful. But then what happened? One quick question: At this point, were they did they have land holdings outside of mainland Italy, or was it? Yes. Okay. Okay. So that's the most important area. Of course, you know, before the West started crumbling, they had it all over. Right. So there were families that we know their land ownings in Gaul, in the East, in Africa, in mm -hmm. Italy, wherever. Of course, Italy was important, but Africa was very important. Right, right. And so for them, it was a big blow when Carthage and right. North Africa went to the Vandals, because that's where they had a lot of income coming from. Right. Not everything was taken away from them, but most was taken away from mm -hmm. them. So this class, they lost money because of of course all the barbarian invasions yeah. in you know as different parts of the empire went past outside went of there. Past, but but they never lost italy right so italy was always under their control when the government changed so it went from being a, formally a roman emperor with a prime minister barbarian to having a roman emperor not more not anymore in the west but in the east and a prime minister still barbarian mm -hmm. so that's what happened right, right. <laughs> not much changed in that sense the the country italy was still under the same regime and they had the same land ownings that they had i mean they had lost a lot but they were still obscenely rich right uh, and we know again we know people uh, very important senators that worked under uh odoacer uh famous liberius no liberius mm -hmm. sorry if i let's use the latin uh, pronunciation liberius so liberius was a senator that worked as an administrator under Odoacer, then King Theodoric arrived, and he was the one that was at the head of the civil administration, basically the, the committee that had to assign land to the gods. Okay, yeah, sure. And, and everybody praised him because he did a very good and fair job. He probably used mostly public land to settle the gods right. and kept the, the, the private senatorial <laughs> land uh, that's why they praised him right right, right. <laughs> and liberius uh, liberius then you know what, what he did when he worked for the successors of theodoric right right and then and then when we get to the point at certain point he defects to justinian <laughs> and he works for justinian justinian sends him as the head of the military mission to conquer spain oh good lord <laughs> he, he's he's administrator also of egypt so he becomes administrator of Egypt. Then Justinian sent him to Spain to, you know, Justinian reconquered a little piece of Spain right. in yeah, the yeah. south of Spain for a, for a time. Yeah. 
like Liberius was the head of that. He becomes also a Praetorian prefect in Gaul. And then finally he dies like 94. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so, 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 you know, the, the French says, say about people like them, reserve de la République, like uh, somebody that could be used by the Republic uh, to whatever mm-hmm. comes, <laughs> you know, we need to have a head of uh, some governmental office who will send this guy. Right. So that's, and that's just one guy, but we know many others. So the, the, the Roman Senate at this point, even though like we've got Justinian stomping through Italy like a bull in a china shop. Uh, yes, but very aptly put. <laughs> um, the, the Senate was still like, the, the, at least the high up people in the Senate were still pretty well connected in the empire. And Oh yeah, these guys, they, they had land ownings in the East. They married with people in the East <laughs> all the time. They traveled there, you know, you know, the, all the time we have letters, they exchanged the letters across the entire empire. So they, they were very interwoven into the fabric mm-hmm. of the empire. And that was also the, a problem for Theodoric because he, he noticed right. that at a certain point yeah. and the faction, I don't know if everyone is, is, uh, knows the history of Boetius, Boetius. I know Boetius, but, uh, maybe my, I don't, I don't think I went into him in much detail. So my listeners might not. Okay. So, so maybe that's another, like Liberius is another nice story, you know, Mm -hmm. and he's the same time. We're talking about the same contemporaries and he's of course in the great family of the, uh, Simaki or which is one of those super high echelon families we have, uh, Simacus, for example, uh, the original uh, most famous member was a writer in the fourth century. And we have his letters across the entire empire. We know a lot about the senatorial class Mm -hmm. thanks to his letters. And Boetius was an administrator, Mm -hmm. bureaucrat, and philosopher. So, of course, he's very, the the, the reason why he's most famous is because he wrote one of the most popular pieces of philosophy in the Middle Ages. It was yeah. re- it was it was like the bestseller of the Middle Ages, not the Consolations of Philosophy. Yeah. And uh, which is kind of it's an interesting. The, the reason it survived is uh, and became so popular. It's kind of like a a textbook. It, it, he goes and touches on every all the greatest hits of ancient philosophy and. Has yeah. them all talking and, to each other in like a dialogue. So if you needed one book to teach your kids philosophy at your monastery yeah, school, it's a good it, it's it's a good summary, and also it's a good read mm-hmm. because you know I read it and it's actually a fun read, a relatively fun read because because of the story. You know, let's right. say why it's so yeah, you know yeah. it's so notorious because Boethius, we don't know the details, right? But he got tangled in something, probably. Not he wasn't, let's say, guilty of of treason, but he got in, let's say, <laughs> enmeshed into probably a treason plot against the other. We cannot say for sure what happened. Likely there was a faction because there was a problem of succession of Theodoric. The the yeah. the heir that was named had died. Uh, Theodoric only had a daughter. Uh, and a very little grandson. So everybody started fi- at that point started yeah. thinking, oh, w- what shall we do? And it's possible that a faction in the Roman Senate, uh, with their connection to Constantinople, tried to to find, a, let's say, a solution to the Theoderic problem. <laughs> okay, 
So, and it's possible that Boethius only tried to defend one of the person, well, we know that he tried to defend one of the person accused, but of course, if you are the king and you look at that and you think, oh, so he must be, you know, yeah. uh, uh, working with them, but maybe probably he wasn't. Right. And he was only defending a friend. So we we don't know, of course, we will never know the, the truth, but the point is he is arrested and put in a jail in Pavia, uh, in North Italy, Ticino at the time. And there, in prison, he writes the Consolation of Philosophy. Right. And he writes as the philosophy comes to visit him as a beautiful woman <laughs> and talks to her. And he tells, he, he tells her, you know, why did I spend so much time with you and now look where, where I am? And then he asks very pugnant question, like why people that are evil seem to thrive? And the people that are good instead are punished and suffer, you know, like yeah. questions that humanity has had since the dawn of time, obviously. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's it's all pretty interesting. So, and this is another member of this class. And again, we are talking about the sixth century and you wouldn't really know that we are not in antiquity anymore. That's why right. we call it late antiquity, right? Because it, it doesn't feel different. Yeah. These, the consolations of philosophy could have been written in the fourth century mm -hmm. by a Christian author. It would have been the same. The conditions are not very different. It would have been persecuted by a Roman emperor, but it would, the, the class is still there. That social class of the senator is still there. The structure of the state is the same, at least in Italy, right. not in Gaul or Spain or uh, Vandal Africa, although you could make a case also there, but that very definitely in Italy, nothing major has changed. Right. So to answer your original question, when does that change? Right. right? Uh, and that's, you referred to it with Justinian <laughs> waltzing in like an elephant in a China store, because that's really when it changes. And the, I think the, in Italy, we should really consider the, um, the war, the Italian war, or the, you know, the, the, the Roman Gothic war in the sixth century as the, let's say, the the border between antiquity and and the middle ages yeah. at least for italy for of course it's more important for italy uh, the, you can make a case for the entire mediterranean but for italy very definitely that's what changes everything and um during the during this war italy is completely destroyed by the war several decades of fighting rome is taken and retaken four times each time with a sack. Right. Uh, Milan is raised to the ground. Several other cities suffer tremendously. Uh, there is famine. We know terrible famines all across Italy. And there is, of course, uh, um, uh, the plague, sure. which hits right in the middle of, of the war. Of course, a plague is always going to be a plague. But if you are also fighting and there's famine... And by the way, there's also uh, a problem with the weather because we know that there were several eruptions of of large volcanoes that uh, that cover the sun, oh, wow. okay. causing multiple years of failures of agriculture. Right. Uh, then, then of course, this is a situation which is dramatic. What we know is that most of the people we can track move to Constantinople. Oh, and okay. so most of the people of the very high echelon of the Senate, I mean, many die. Right. A lot of them die. 
a lot of them die there, they get in the crossfire during the war. Right. The people that can escape to Constantinople. And many then we find their successors there. Right. So so that's what happened to the senators. Either died or were uh, in Constantinople. But then the war ends. And in theory, you may think, okay, you know, simple. These people, they had... Uh, so we know that during the war, all the slaves that were tending the fields, they all didn't care anymore about their owners or anything. They probably took, uh, you know, ownership of whatever that yeah. they didn't pay any taxes or they, or they you know, ran uh, or they ran or they were killed. So, you know, there was such a confusion. We know that from laws that Justinian made that was a huge confusion and of course, we also have towards the end of the war, we have uh, Totila, the king, the new king of the Ostrogoths, that actually passed laws to allow uh, slaves to take ownership of mm. the of the land and to to become free. And if, you know, at the beginning, to if they fought with for for yeah. for the for Italy, for him, for, for Totila, right. that was a war be- between Italy and the East. Right, yeah. not between the gods and, and the Byzantines. So if they fought for Italy, they will get their freedom and their land. You know, typical, uh, uh, typical thing. So, so we know also all that. We know that there was a huge confusion. So imagine what happens after decades of war. You know, nobody knows who owns everything anymore. Right. The the records have been burned. But maybe you still know that you own that land. And the the thing, the good thing for the senators was that Justinian, when the war was winding down, he passed this pragmatica sanctione, which basically said whatever Totila did is illegal. He was a tyrant. Right. So that those laws are not valid. However, all the laws, even though Justinian said that the Visigoth, the sorry, the Ostrogothic kings were illegal, he said whatever whatever Theoderic uh, and successors, the lawful successor, uh, decided, it's still valid. So, if you were a senator and you received land by by a law passed yeah. by Theoderic, you still own that land. That's we're, we're not going to roll no? back the legal system by two hundred years, only fifty. <laughs> Not even 50 was like the last 15 years where sure, yeah, okay. But so, but just to say, we will bring everything to the beginning of the war, okay? So everybody will get back what they had then, sure. And so, in theory, if that would have worked, maybe the senator class would have rebuilt itself. Mm-hmm. However, we do not see any returning senators, so they stay in Constantinople, right. the one we know. So Probably they sent their agents to get the uh, income, but they didn't bother because Italy was a wasteland. Right. That, uh, by the time. Whatever they knew, the life they knew was destroyed. Well, you know, the, the, the whole economic system had been so strongly based on slavery in Italy in late antiquity. You know, whatever. Granted, it was a different form of yeah, slavery. Yeah, it's more, more than slavery. It was more like this slavery soft of yeah. the... Um, Almost that, a tenant that, farming system kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Tenant farming. But but yes, they, they also had still a lot of slaves. Not as many as during the Republican time. Right. Uh, but they still owned plenty. So what are you going to... How you, you You take control of your land via an agent, but all of your tenants are gone or you know, yeah. dead or they're calling themselves goths now or... <laughs> yeah, 
they they went away. So so you know the income. Uh, I I don't remember, but I think I, there was uh, like one proof they were saying that they they were lucky if they would get ten percent. Yeah. On on one of what they were making before the war. So of course there's not income anymore. Rome has been destroyed. You know all the all your friends, your pals that you went to the party with, mm-hmm. they are now in Constantinople. Why bother going <laughs> to Italy, no? Yeah. And then something even worse happened that basically convinced them never to return. <laughs> and that was the Lombard invasion, right. which happened just a few years after the end uh, of, of the Gothic War. And uh, the, Lombard, the Lombard invasion wasn't particularly destructive. Yeah. So I always say that Italy was destroyed by the Roman Empire. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the Lombards were a pretty loose group. It's it's almost like they just walked in. <laughs> yeah, they, they walked in in an Italy that was absolutely exhausted. Yeah. And and actually, especially in the north of Italy, fairly anti anti empire. Yeah. So they didn't encounter like a principled opposition in that sense the 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 eastern administrators from what i've read did not cover themselves in glory there was an awful you know in the mean while the war is happening and everyone's dying of diseases and everything's burning they're also uh affecting some uh some really exquisite levels of corruption (laughs) uh the the war was absolutely the the gothic war was an absolute mess yeah and like like you would i think has a level of modernity into it when I, yeah. when you read it and you read these uh, uh, I, I mean it reminds me also of the Thirty Years War yes. in that sense yeah, like yeah. a like a very destructive but not to the level of you know medieval or uh, even some you know late medieval uh, wars where you know you just have some traveling armies making damage somewhere yeah. but not everywhere yeah you have this level of modern level of destruction that is really granular to the to end yes the administrators to win the war they did whatever they deemed necessary right. with the local population at the beginning they tried to to let's say to to present themselves as liberators mm-hmm. with certain success but very quickly the Ita- Italians <laughs> became this uh, had a very strong disillusion with them yeah. very very quickly so so yes yes they didn't cover themselves in glory definitely so long story short then the senate, the senate is still there mm-hmm. so um we know the last meeting of the senate that we do know uh, happened in 604, if I my memory uh, goes well. So as you notice, the invasion, the Lombard invasion, the, the Gothic War was in the middle of the 6th century, so 533 to 554. Right. Then the Lombard invasion is 568. We know that there was still the prefect of the city, uh, Prefectus Urbi, in, in Rome, which was usually a senator, uh, we know that there must have been some have, must have been there still. Mm-hmm. And then we know that in 604, Gregory the Great called one meeting of the Senate uh, to uh, basically to discuss uh, the news coming from uh, from the East about uh, about new emperor focus. And uh, basically, the images of the emperor and the empress were brought in, and everybody uh, gave their blessing to the to the new emperors. Right. Uh, but this meeting 
significantly was not held in the uh, House of the Senate in the Forum, which you can still visit, by the way. If you go to Rome, you still see (laughs) standing the house the the house of the senate because it was turned into a church right so it was turned into a church and then during fascism they destroyed uh, the church around it okay. uh yeah well <laughs> you know how they yeah they they weren't very respectful no uh they, i could say so many things about how much damage fascism did to to but anyways yeah. that's not the yeah. point and and so you can see this house of the senate which is in the forum was built by diocletian Mm-hmm. Uh, to substitute the earlier version that had burned down. Right. So that's from the third century. But the meeting was not held there. was held at the Lateran Palace. Mm. So very symbolic. Yeah. You, the Lateran Palace is the palace of the popes. Right. By the way, if you know a little bit of Rome, this is a very typical of late antiquity cities. The Lateran is, is not in the center. Yeah. If you look at the walls, the Lateran is right next to the, to the walls. And that's be, that's very typical of big uh, bishop palaces in Italy and 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 cathedrals too. Interesting, because the 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 center of the town, the original center of the town, is where you had all the temples. Right. And usually the cathedral was built somewhere else. Hmm. Usually at the edge of town, and then during the early Middle Ages, often what happens is that the city moves. So yeah. The, the cathedral becomes the center of the city, but it was not in the center of the old city. Right. Now, Rome is a very peculiar yeah. situation because it, it's much bigger than anything else. So Rome was more a collection of villages inside yes. these enormous walls. <laughs> uh, but other cities, I can give you an example. There's a very nice city called Brescia in North Italy. I suggest to visit because there's incredible ruins there. And the forum survives... It's the best forum you can see. In Italy. Oh, great. And that's because the city moved. Right. <laughs> and the forum was covered by a landslide. So it's you basically see this, temp, this temple and, and the forum is, is almost, I mean, as unskated as it can be after 2,000 years. Under, yeah. and, and many other cities did the same. So anyway, they have this meeting at the Lateran, and this is the last time we hear here uh, of the Senate. And also the Praetorian Prefect disappears. Hmm. Again, the two things are probably connected. Yeah, yeah. So that's probably the end of of the original Senate. That doesn't mean that later on, we don't have again a Senate. Yeah. And that starts to reappear at the end of the 7th century and beginning of 8th. Right. But apparently, it is not formed anymore by the old senatorial class. But this new class of military leaders Mm -hmm. that you talked about also in in your podcast. So what happens is Italy basically militarizes during the late 6th century and early 7th because it's so fragmented. Yeah. each piece that remain, remains in the empire has to become a self-sufficient military district. Right. And the people running the show, they are not anymore civilians that pay a military to defend them, right. but they are uh, of officials themselves. And often by their names, it's hard to say, but their names, it looks like there's a big changeover. So that, uh, that they are... 
people coming, f- some come from the East. Mm. So they arrive in Italy with the Byzantine armies. Right, right. And then they, you know, you served in Italy, you stay, you like there, nice place. And then you say, oh, you know, I make a lot of money as an official. Yeah. Why don't I buy some land, which now is cheap because yeah. people have died and <laughs> nobody knows anything. So, so they start buying, and we know that some there are some deeds surviving. They start buying land. Like in Ravenna, we have actual deeds of the time. And they buy land. That's what we think happened. Yeah. So they buy land and then they became big landowners. Of course, that's the, the highway to become like a, an important person. I think all time in, in all time in yeah. history, is there a time when buying land doesn't make <laughs> you become uh, an important uh, big shot in, in your town? I think, <laughs> I think it's still valid. Probably today you buy a big company yeah. is even better. Yeah. But, but, you know, if, if you have a lot of ranches around the Texan city, yeah. I guarantee you, <laughs> you, you, you will still have an important seat at the theater. So, certainly, you uh, know, pre-industrial societies, land is like the, uh, it's the source the of wealth. Yeah. 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 So that's how they, they become then the leader. But some are probably also Italian themselves that become, mm-hmm. that are in the army. And again, they career rich yeah powerful sometimes you buy sometimes you know you have the pointy thing yeah. you know what you're gonna say <laughs> yeah who's gonna say no <laughs> yeah, but this i have uh, this piece of paper that says yeah. that uh, i've yeah, what, yeah, what piece of paper <laughs> <laughs> tell me again <laughs> so let me just summarize this a little, a little bit so we had before there were like the ultra wealthy, there were sort of like a couple different classes of senator, even. Yes. Within the senator, you have different levels. But the, yeah. So the absurdly wealthy ones either got killed in the wars or most of them probably left. Yeah. Uh, so the people who were left were the probably the less wealthy ones to begin with. Exactly. And then then you had all the land that was essentially worthless. The land was worth, ah, and I didn't say, the Lombards, of course, took a big chunk right. of it, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So when the Lombards yeah. arrived, whatever was left, you know, Rome at that point ended 50 kilometers away from the city. So yes. imagine, yeah. and even if you owned something in, in another right. part of Italy, you couldn't get there. So again, right. the people there said... Bye bye. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting is uh, that I hadn't thought of before we started. We started this conversation. The church ended up with you know just huge tracts yes. of land, yes. which is you know Gregory the Great. Part of why he's the great is that he was the guy who organized the the Pope's land holdings and started just delivering shipments of food into, into Rome, Rome and just yeah. handing it out on yeah. street corners. Essentially, I didn't mention that, and I should, and I should have. That wasn't necessarily the focus of what we were talking about, but I think it's an interesting connection that for most of the Middle Ages, we talk about the, the church accumulating power through sort of these uh, religious gifts that are given by the nobility for various reasons. And we sort of, I'm used to thinking about it a certain way. It's like, you know, some wealthy widow who's dying and she writes out a, oh, yeah. a will, you yeah. know, and everything. I'm sort of thinking there's probably a different flavor to what's going on in this era, where it's just like some senator in Constantinople going, eh. It's worth Where can I dump this? Yeah, it, it, I can correctly. And and they say, and here's one thing. Let's talk about monastery for one second, because this is mm-hmm. very interesting. And it's valid across the entire Middle Ages, but it's definitely valid also in late antiquity. 
Right. You know, people think, oh, why a, a rich person would give away, let's say, a quarter of their wealth, no? That's right. that's a typical size, 20%, yeah. 25%. When they die, they will leave it and they will build a monastery on that land and, and gift the land right. to the monastery. And one can think like, oh, they really, they just cared about the afterlife. And they definitely, right. probably, yeah. many did. However, the monastery is also a place where, coincidentally, uh, usually the abbot or the abbess yeah. is of the same family. Yeah. This is also a way to set up, uh, you know, it's, my worthless nephew or something. But it's even, <laughs> even another way. It's a way of locking wealth. Because yes. think of it as, as uh, you know, like uh, when they do the foundations now. No, the rich people, they create a, uh, a foundation that for, for whatever, and they give the money there. And then the head of the board is a member of the family. Right. It's a, also a way to lock away wealth and make sure it's not touched anymore. Right. So if there is a risk... You where what is safer? Is safer where is your wealth safer? It's safer with the church because if it's with the church, then typically a change of regime in order will will not touch that wealth. We'll try not to touch that wealth. Whereas a big landowner guy, change of regime, your land is the first one that goes to my supporters that brought right. me to the to, to the throne. If you bet right. on the wrong horse. Uh, then you lose your land. But if it's locked away in a monastery, then you don't. So it's almost like a trust for like, for the, the members, you know, if I backed the wrong horse, I'm probably dead anyway, but at least like the family will know, be fine. My mother will be they they care will of, still yeah. have influence. They will go, you know, yeah. and usually we see that the, the son and the, you know, the, we have the same family ruling that the monastery for generations. So it's right. not something that is only the first one and then it's gone, that influence. That right. thing stays there. It's like Yeah. So because the um the those positions, just to say this, they were elective positions like Abbott and everything like that. But once you you know, once your family set up the institution and brought in all the monks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I put it here. I paid for everything. What you're going to do, you're going to vote against me. <laughs> yeah. so, so anyway, <laughs> and, uh, so it's it's it, and I'm giving a big generalization here, but definitely there was also a lot of deeds at the deathbed to, you know, to make sure to do a last donation in order to right. appease uh, you know, for whatever, for the afterlife, uh, so that people, many will build a church or a monastery so that people will pray in their right. name, right? So that, uh, mm -hmm. and there was the belief that if people in this world, these champions of God prayed in my name, then they will intercede for me in the afterlife. Of course, I'm not saying anything right. that is revolutionary. I just, uh, you have said it yeah. a million times. But, yeah. but, but yes, the church accumulates an enormous amount of wealth. No, now the church, the churches, because right. yeah, that's important. we know, for example, that the two biggest landowner in Italy in the seventh century, in the late sixth and seventh, eighth century also, were uh, the church of Rome, the first one and the second mm -hmm. one was the church of Ravenna uh, right. was the second landowner. 
And again, and then they spent the next two centuries fighting. Exactly. <laughs> and you, you again, you see why. I mean, you see why. And we even know yeah. how much it made. For for example, uh, uh, Agnellus, um, the that is the basically writes the Liber Pontificalis of the Ch- R- Ravenna Church, tells us sure. that in the seventh century. Now I go by memory. Eh? The, the Ravenna got uh, forty thousand modi of wheat a year and um, 50,000 gold coins, which is, in case you wonder, just translated into a lot. They got really a lot of money out of it. Most peasants would not see a gold coin in a year. Exactly. (laughs) And that's only from Sicily. eh? That's the wealth. I mean, it was the most important land ownings outside the area of Ravenna that they had, but it Mm -hmm. was not the only one. So, so, so that's kind of gives you an idea of, of the importance of this. And we know from the, the epistolarium of Gregory that the church, unlike senators, they still had land ownings outside Italy. They had it in right. Africa. They had it in, in Gaul, especially in Provence. Uh, yeah. So, and they had a few, yeah, they had Sardinia, Corsica, uh, Dalmatia, right. uh, so, and so forth. The one in Africa seems to be important. Also for the Church of Rome, by far the biggest was Sicily. Sicily was right. like the the thing that fed and gave money to all Italy during this time. Right. And, you know, everything, the, the transport routes were all chaotic and everything, but it was a little bit easier for the Pope to come to, you know, every local lord and whatever and say, like, can we get some passage for our grain wagons? Yeah, but <laughs> it wasn't grain wagons, by the way. All this was shipped by sea. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's it ship, was shipping. all shipped by sea. All these land ownings, they were all connected by sea. And in general, right, that's yeah. valid for all, almost, I will say, the entire human history. It's always cheaper to, 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 to send yeah. stuff by, by sea. So actually, the, the thing about having the the roads in the past, they were saying, "Oh, the roads are all ruined." So that's why there's no. But but really, not a lot of shipment went through roads. Most went. Right. You usually would get to the port nearest, really the closest thing you could get to whatever inland you needed to go, and then you yeah. you'll travel just a few miles on land. Yeah. And even in the north Italy, they will use the the Po River and the rivers. Right for for sure. shipment and this is also in roman time eh? we're not talking yeah i, I mean because um one thing people don't think about it but you know pre pre-industrial technology your propulsive force for a wagon is actually if you're shipping grain they're eating the grain exactly so you, <laughs> you fairly quickly get to a point where your your cart is eating your horses and your oxen or whatever are eating more grain than they're the, actually the, 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 they actually transport and, and that's why they, they used all these ingenious ways to move stuff around by water as much as possible maybe your mm-hmm. listeners will not know probably this but did you know that ravenna was connected by canal to the Po river and itself from the Po river across the entire north italy through aquileia which is in the northeastern part all these by canals and waterways inside the lagoon. even back then even back then we know wow. that because cassiodorus of course big uh, the the you know the one of the main important officials of the uh of theoderic mm-hmm. wrote by the way a wonderful letter 
that I would suggest reading. Uh, I don't remember which book and which, uh, but he wrote this letter to the, to the uh, Tribuni Maritimi, the, uh, the maritime tribunes of Venezia. And so okay. this is considered, this letter is considered like a like sort of birth letter of Venice. Of course, there's right. no Venice as we know today, but he describes their world and he says, you across the water, uh, you never touch the sea and you're able to move the goods along uh, all, basically all North Italy. You live in this world where you go by boat. The boat is your horse. And you <laughs> you tied your boat next to your house. Uh, it's very po- it's all very poetic and very detailed. So we know the mm-hmm. details and we know how the system worked, and we know from that that the system uh, was still working at the time. So it's uh, it's in general water is what was used, but even in the Byzantine times, uh, we know that Naples, uh, Syracuse. Um, uh, Carthage, uh, the right. port of Rome, were all Ravenna. They were all right. hubs of commerce. I will say one interesting thing that probably not many know: in Rome, there's an incredible excavation site called Crypta Balbi. It's actually mm-hmm. uh, a museum, so you can visit today. Um, and cri- what is Crypta Balbi? Is basically imagine uh, one of these, uh, ins- you know, like like a, a square with four streets around of ancient mm-hmm. Rome that for a series of reason, basically in, in the late 19th century, they destroyed the buildings uh, of, of, you know, medieval Renaissance time. The, you know, mm-hmm. again, one of those things that you shouldn't do, but because they right. did, they left this hole in Rome <laughs> and then it was abandoned until the 80s. of the 19th century of the 20th century sorry so and in the 80s luckily they started excavating it and is the only excavation really at that level done in the center of rome because normally in the center of rome you can't excavate because you have all the buildings you can't and destroy them to see what's behind uh, what's underneath and in cryptobalbi they did and they and the interesting thing is by then luckily there was more attention to the medieval time because if they did the same during fascism, they would have destroyed all the medieval part. They say, ah, let's take yeah. away all this barbaric stuff. Let's get to the Romans. Uh, yeah. Often, by the way, you know, when you go to the forum now and you see the pavement of, of the forum, the, mm-hmm. the archaeologists of fascism destroyed the level of late antiquity because they thought there was medieval to get to the real Roman one <laughs> and so and so you see these monuments and you see the bottom you, you can notice you need to notice the bottom is naked but is naked yeah. because the level uh, of the ancient time had reason and, yeah. and in late antiquity that looked nice but you know they basically got anyway yeah. enough uh, complaining <laughs> about did they complain already about fascism archaeology you mentioned it. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> so anyway, in Balbi, luckily they did it in the eighties, and they discovered this trove of proofs of trade mm-hmm. uh, in the seventh century, sixth and seventh century in sixth seventh century Rome, and this is extremely interesting because we have import from all over the Mediterranean Sea. We do not have it from the eighth century. Right. And, and and probably we'll get 
there, no? Because the 8th century, something changes quite dramatically. But in the 7th mm-hmm. century, in the 6th century, we do have trade. And we also have specialized, they found in Cryptobalbi some specialized uh, manufacturing for mm-hmm. uh, glass making, for gold, for, you know, to make um, jewelries and things. They were clearly exported. They found rings that were, they were destined to uh, Lombard dukes, gold rings. Right. So they had right. made them, probably there was some defect, so they threw them away <laughs> and or whatever. <laughs> I, I don't know. No, they should have yeah. reused the gold. So I don't know. They found those and they and uh, they, they were clearly for export to Lombard Italy. So we know that Rome in the seventh century, although much poorer, much smaller, was still right. inserted into the, let's say, network of, of trade sure. of the Mediterranean area. Now, if you think about the seventh century, you know that in six in the six thirties the Arabs arrive, but at the beginning they only conquer uh, Egypt only, Egypt, Syria, and Palestine. Right. So there's still all the trade that go to goes to North Africa, that goes to the east. So that's mm-hmm. still there. Um, and finally, I don't know if you maybe I shall add very briefly. Uh, If you go to, you know, Piazza Venezia in Rome is the the square in front, you know, where Mussolini did the the speeches and where you have this big, white, enormous monument you cannot possibly miss when you are in Rome, right? uh, It's the (laughs) wedding cake or the typewriter, as they call it. So that's, if you have been to Rome, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, when you go, you'll see, ah, that's the typewriter. <laughs> so, and and so the, in Piazza Venezia, they have to build a metro stop, uh, and so they did this all this archaeological excavation very recently in the uh, 2010s, and and okay. they found uh, uh, this ancient, uh, um, uh, basically all made by Adrian in the second century, mm-hmm. but interestingly in the uh, seventh century in the sixth, probably late sixth, early seventh century, was turned into uh, a coin making. It's a mint, sorry, in, into a mint basically. And uh, so we know that there was a mint there, and again, he was working making gold coins and uh, and, and bronze coins, but then it closed down in the early eighth century again, and that's. Another right. piece of the puzzle, no? <laughs> the trade <laughs> stops and the mint stops. The mint yeah. very clearly was run by the imperial government, not by the Pope. Mm-hmm. So, uh, okay, yeah, sure. So because we are still in the 7th century. In the 7th century Rome, the Pope was very important. Gave food, the Lateran was basically a semi-government, as you explained, but it wasn't still in full control of the city. There were still officials of the empire uh, that, of course, probably worked also for the Pope. You know, the the border there is is hard to ascertain. But but there were, the the, the mint was, that mint clearly worked for the empire. Because when the Popes start making their own coins, we know, and they are very poor quality. And those are, and <laughs> and those were not poor quality. Those were imperial, good quality coins. Right. Um, and and then we also know that the uh, Palatine Hill, 
uh, you still had the imperial um, palace. And there is a church. If you go to the forum, one of the, the Roman forum, one of the sites you cannot visit with a normal ticket, but you need to buy a ticket with like added bonus. It's called Santa Maria Antiqua. And it's a very interesting church where you have uh, basically was covered again by a landslide in the ninth century after an earthquake. They built a church on top of it and people knew about it. So there was a decision made, but this time in modern times, okay, the church is, is like any other church. We can actually demolish it and, uh, mm-hmm. and get to the old church. And the old church has a fr- trove of paintings and Oh, uh, wow. from the 6th, 7th, 8th century. So it's really, wow. it's a magical place. Uh, if you want to see like very early medieval art in Rome, uh, that's the yeah. place. And um, yeah, and there they found again that probably this worked as a kind of imperial um, meeting place for 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 the uh, for the people working for the empire, for the Hellenic, Hellenophon, community in Rome because everything mm-hmm. is written in Greek. That's another, right. another very yeah. unusual. If you think about it in the land of Latin, <laughs> you have a church yeah. with things written in Greek. And it's well, there was a, there was a huge Greek population in Rome at yes. the time. Um, yes. For a variety of reasons. It wasn't just uh, Imperial officials. It yeah. Was it was traders people and people uh, of all sorts coming to Rome. Yes. And then once the Persian Wars and then immediately thereafter the Arab invasions started happening out east, then there were a lot of refugees yes. and Very true. religious refugees uh, coming in that, that kept things going. Uh, and then as I covered in the last couple of episodes, those people weren't always necessarily friendly to the empire. No, so. no, absolutely. Absolutely, it's true. Like the, the so-called Greek popes uh, from the yeah. late 7th and early 8th century as are very definitely on the, in the you know, uh, against whatever comes from the East uh, and they assert the autonomy of the, uh, of the papacy. So, no, no, absolutely. Uh, they are Hellenophon, but they are not... Uh, uh, stooge of the empire. Yes. <laughs> if you if you're up for it, let's talk about the eighth century. Then, what was going on in Italy outside of Rome during the period we're covering? For the purposes of time and sanity, let's limit this to what was happening in Italy from like the arrival of the Lombards to the arrival of Otto the first. Ah, yes. Very. I'll try to be succinct. <laughs> As you clearly noticed, yeah. I'm not very good at it, but I will try. No, that's fine. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, basically, um, what we have is that we have, after the invasion of, of the Lombards in 568, we have two Italys. We, ha- we had one Italy. I usually get mad when people say that Italy is only 150 years old, uh, 160 <laughs> a little bit more, uh, because after unification 1860, because Italy was really unified in the, I will say, after the social war in the first century before Christ. Uh, so we have un- united Italy until the sixth century. But after, after 568, we have Lombard Italy and Imperial Italy or Byzantine Italy. And these are mm-hmm. very different. So Byzantine Italy, we have taxes like in the empire. Uh, we have uh, 
the bishops that are the official of the city. Uh, we have an army organized uh, as a, as a late Roman army, like again with uh, the officials and the people that are paid to do that, right? Even though they're starting to be paid much less and and being much more landowners than anything, but that's an yeah. evolution. So we had that Italy looks a lot like the rest of the Byzantine Empire. Um, we've, of course, variations. Uh, we have the very peculiar case of Rome, where the Pope, as the bishop of the city, has become so important in the city. Yeah. And then we have other areas where Ravenna is, we have the Exarch that has a much stronger authority on that area and is a direct appointee of the empire. So that area is much more connected to Constantinople than probably anywhere else. Sicily is a world on its own with its uh, heavy, like, like agriculture for export business, basically, uh, which yeah. is really very unique. Uh, in that sense. Uh, Lombard Italy is very different because in Lombard Italy, first of all, when the Lombards arrive, they expel or anyway limit a lot the power of bishops. The bishops that remain are for a long time, I mean, many cities, they lose the bishop, but the bishops that remain, they are clearly powerless for a long time. So it's a very different situation from Imperial Italy where instead bishops are basically a sort of may, may, uh, mayors of the city, right? Right. And uh, and then we have a situation where the army is not paid. The army right. is actually uh, formed by the freemen. The freemen have an obligation to fight. They don't. They're not paid to fight. Uh, they. It's very similar in a way to Republican Rome in that sense that if you are a freeman, yeah. then you are supposed to fight for the country. Um, and, uh, and for the king in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the situation there leads to a very much simpler administration because you, you do not need to collect taxes anymore, basically, uh, simply because you don't have to pay your, the army, the army, we know that was always the lion's share of the, um, of the expenditure uh, of the Roman state. So you don't have to collect taxes and they do, they don't. And mm-hmm. therefore, you don't need that big administration. You need a palace with lawyers uh, running the, um, the laws, you know, deciding, adjudicating, you know, whatever, the tribunal, basically. And you need uh, officials in every city that are appointed by the king, uh, but are also important landowners of the area. And that's it. So that's kind of... Uh, the big division that we start to see between Lombard and Imperial Italy that continue to develop uh, for the entire 7th century as the kingdom, kingdom of the Lombards becomes more and more sophisticated because it, it, it starts as a very, very rundown thing, but then with time consolidates a bit. The, the, the authority of the king is, grows in, in importance uh, when we get to the 8th century, Liuprand has clear control of the entire kingdom. And, right. But it is a place where land is basically everything because you, you don't make money anymore. Money is not right. important. What is important is land. You have land, they, you have uh, people uh, cultivating that land and giving you 
the extra, and you live off the land. And the power is not anything but land. Land is power. Uh, I mean, land is power everywhere, but it's much more because you you can't have a lot of money. You can only have a lot of land. You cannot have a lot of money. And even officials, the payment is assigning them land. So telling them, okay, this land that belongs to the Gastald or the Duke um, will become, you are the Duke. So you take that land and you exploit it and that's your payment. That's Yeah, and in order to earn that land, you have a variety of official duties that you're supposed to perform. Exactly. But, and again, we're in early medieval state, so let's not exaggerate the complications of things, but in general, uh, the Lombard Italy, you have a a sort of administrator of the royal land, which is the Gastald, Mm -hmm. and then you have uh, basically the duke, uh, uh, that is the dukes, that is basically the uh, starts as the head of the military district. So you are the Duke of Friuli. In right. theory, you are the commander of the regional army of Friuli, of that area of right. Italy. But then eventually, of course, that person maybe passed the dukedom to the son. Although, again, there's no yeah. feudal rules here. And eh? there's right. no. Uh, because you are the duke of that town, then you, your son will be the duke of the town. That doesn't exist. They right. are considered as uh, appointed officials still uh, in the right. Roman mentality still. So we have these two uh, Italies that develop in parallel. And then in the 8th century, really simplifying, we have a third Italy that develops. And that, that third Italy is what today we may call the Papal States. And it is right. basically the, the Lombards in very important uh, passages 751 when uh, the Lombard king Astolf uh, conquers Ravenna. And then that's, you know, that's the... Again, Ravenna f- for the Pope is always so important. We, we talked about Cambrai yeah. and it's the same here. Conquering Ravenna is like for the Pope it means, okay, I'm next. I don't want to become a Lombard bishop. Yeah. So what I will do, I will <laughs> travel to, Fr- to, to, to Francia, to France, what we would call France, but it's not France, of course, Kingdom of the Franks. And uh, I yeah. will find an agreement with the Franks so that they will keep me alive. But this a situation in the 8th century develops because of the weakness of the Roman Empire that right. went through a very, very difficult phase and, and could not protect anymore central right. Italy from the Lombards. And it's worth saying the uh, maritime networks that we were t- just talking about a few minutes ago that were sort of uh, the heart and soul economically of the empire. Now we've got you know, yeah, Arab pirates now we have Arab, swarming Yeah, off. after the Battle of the Mast in 652, yeah. the Arabs have a huge fleet, you know, they, yeah. like Star Wars. They, they, can, they, can, <laughs> they can sail now. <laughs> so <laughs> they are not in the desert anymore, <laughs> only in the desert. Yeah. <laughs> so you have that. Yes, and, and as I was saying about Cryptobalbi, we have a clear, big decline. They, when they take Carthage, in 697 or 98 again that's a huge blow to imperial because italy and north africa are always connected and yeah. have always been and now that's severed <laughs> and that's another blow yeah. and then in the early 8th century in the first half you have the a fight between the popes and the emperor 
regarding taxation, probably they wrapped it into yeah. iconoclasts. Say, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was probably taxes. And uh, um, and basically, what the emperor did, uh, we don't know if Leo the Third or Constantine the Fifth, the Dung named, uh, but one of the two <laughs> took away all the land. Here is the very important thing. Because the Pope yes. rebelled and started not obeying the empire, the empire at a certain point, when they lost patience, said, okay, we are losing Rome. So what we are going to do, we are not going even to try to make up with them. And we are going to take away their source of power. What is their source of power? Their land in Sicily. So what we're going to right. do, we will take it away. So they take away the land in Sicily and the rest of in southern Italy where, where they have a stronger control of things. And they even take yeah. away those bishops from the authority of Rome. Right. And so and they put it under Constantinople. So basically saying, you're, you're out of here. But of course, that, right. that's already a break. And we're talking here the seven, 730s. So before actually uh, yeah. uh, the agreement with the Franks. Uh, so there was already a break. Very clearly, there was a break before yeah. the alliance with the Franks. There was a break, but then the Pope was left alone. And that's when we see the mint is closed. So there's no more mint. Yeah. They start minting their own crappy coins, the Popes. They, they don't, but they don't <laughs> have any source of income. So they have to reorganize right. the land around Rome. They, they never really cared about the land around Rome, which is not very fertile. It's not, it's not great right. land, but they do now have to care because that's what they have left. So they create these, um, uh, these uh, farms, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the Domus Culte, which are these uh, farms that basically belong to the Pope and uh, they are organized to be at the same time source of income and source of fighters for the militia. So it's very clearly right. a state that is trying to be born uh, out of uh, the fight with the empire, but again, this uneasy relationship with the Lombards. And when the Lombards conquer Ravenna, the Pope thinks, "Okay, I broke with the po with, with the empire, but I need some strong protector because otherwise I'll be conquered." And so that's where we have the alliance with with the Franks, uh, which at the beginning they come with Pepin. Uh, and yeah. they defeat the Lombards, but they don't conquer them. And then it will be Charlemagne that in 774 yeah. conquers the Lombards. I mean, I, I know you covered a bit this, but what is yeah. interesting behind, behind, besides the facts is what happens to Italy after the, the conquest yes. uh, uh, of the Franks. So what happens is that, and again, this there is a big debate about this, uh, many different opinions. So... <laughs> Take it. Uh, the Latins will say cum grano salis. So with <laughs> with a pinch of salt. Um, <laughs> the what we know is that the papal state go through an evolution where at the beginning they are probably a very autonomous part. Uh, they are probably allied with the Franks, but then when it morphs into an empire, they are kind of considered a very autonomous part within the empire. And what is this yeah. papal state, this third Italy? No, Because we have still three Italies. We have Sicily yeah. and the deep south, 
So, you know, the toe and the tip of the booth, right? Those areas right. and the bowl. Sicily is the bowl, usually. Uh, these areas yeah. are still imperial lands. They're under Constantinople. There's a lot of Greek spoken. Uh, the laws are the laws of the Roman Empire and everything is imperial Byzantine. Uh, then we have uh, uh, the, um, the papal states, which uh, really... If you think about them, to explain why they have that funny shape across Italy, yeah. again, I know you like a lot of geography to explain history. <laughs> so, and that's because the main route to connect Ravenna and Rome uh, went right. through there. And is also the main route to go to the north. Today, if you want to go from Rome to Milan, you do not go through Ravenna. You stay on the uh, west side of Italy. But that right. was considered impractical at the time. So what they did, <laughs> they crossed Italy diagonally to Ravenna, and then they, they went to Milan. Uh, so that's why yeah. that area developed into then the Palapal state. And, um, and then you have the Lombard Italy that has been conquered, um, where Charlemagne, over time, uh, changed all the main dukes into Frankish counts. So... Usually right. he waits that they die, and then he names a successor will be a Frankish, Frankish count. Notice the change right. of the nomination. Lombards use dukes, yeah. and the Franks use counts. Um, right. And and then he starts passing laws, but he keeps the Lombard kingdom separated from the, his other kingdom. So the the kingdom of Italy remains like a separate entity within the empire. Right. And this is considered at the beginning the, the first personal union in European history. Before it becomes an mm. empire, basically Charlemagne is at the same time king of the Franks and king of the Lombards. But then it becomes right. the empire. So right. we have that. No, we, yeah, we've, we've covered that, that part um, pretty well. The one thing to highlight, I think, is um, you know, in terms of the show, basically from here on out for a while, whenever we talk about Italy... Mostly we're talking about the Kingdom of Italy, which is actually Northern Italy. Because yeah. Southern Italy is sort of doing its yeah. own thing, like you said, the, the three Italies. Okay, so from now on, let's talk only about the Kingdom of Italy, because yeah. you covered the Papal States anyway. And uh, yeah. what happens in the Kingdom of Italy is that uh, the first, uh, at the beginning, we have several, there's almost always a King of Italy. So there's always uh, a heir of, of the Emperor uh, in, during the, the Carolingian century, you know, the, the ninth century, there's almost always someone that is actually the king of Italy. Right. And, uh, and at the beginning, their authority is fairly strong. Like it was strong, actually, at, towards the end, also the authority of the Lombard kings. Right. And that's right. because they had a lot of land. The kings actually owned a lot of land. And actually, the, the big landowners of Italy, they weren't that big at that time. So unlike right. in France, in, in Francia, where you had enormous landowners with a huge power, and they usually um, lived in the country, in their right. mansion, let's say, uh, in Italy, <laughs> the landowners, they tended to, first of all, have much smaller properties. And we know that from, you know, these deeds that start to appear from the 8th century afterwards. So we know that. And... And they, and they also tend to live in the city, so identify with the city. So they will be big, important f people inside their city life. 
So Italy right. has a city life that the rest of the Carolingian Empire doesn't have. I mean, there are, of course, yeah. cities in the Carolingian Empire, but they are very small things and they're not important. The kings don't spend time right. in them, usually. Yeah. The, the big lords don't spend time in them. They're just pe- places where people live, but they're not important. Right. In Italy, they are. And people identify their territory with the city. Right. Like they did in Roman time. This is There's much more continuity in that sense in, in Italy, mm-hmm. in the kingdom of Italy. And... Uh, And we start to see uh, an evolution where we even have, uh, for example, there's a famous uh, controversy which goes from Lombard time (laughs) to Carolingian time. You know, there's a fight in in the courthouse between the city of Arezzo and the city of Siena in Tuscany. These are beautiful, (laughs) very beautiful cities, by the way. If you want to visit Italy, Arezzo and Siena, you know, two thumbs up. Please go there. Uh, uh, you know, don't skip those small towns. And they are fighting for the border of their bishopric. And uh, and the people of Siena clearly identify themselves as Senesi, even the, the important people. They're not counts of their own land. They are right. citizens of Siena. And the others are citizens of Arezzo. And, and we have several, and, and it's funny because we can... There's a paper trail of all this controversy that goes through the centuries, you know, uh, several Lombard kings, Charlemagne, and then successor of Charlemagne (laughs) could keep adjudicating this, hoping that they will stop fighting and they never do. You know, there's always uh, the Senesi saying, this town should be mine. And the Arezzo, no, these are belong to us. (laughs) Anyways, so we have this difference of, of the kingdom of Italy compared to the rest of the Carolingian world. It is more city-based and it is mm-hmm. um, the uh, the noblemen belong to the city and not the city to the noblemen. Right. Uh, right. But then the evolution that we start to see when the Carolingian disappear in the late 9th century is that we start seeing these big fights between you know, the very factions, you know, the, you know, Spoletan faction, the faction for Berengar right. and the faction, all these <laughs> very nebulous fights. What they do is each faction tries to capture the kingdom. And by the way, often that brings the prize of the empire because at that time, if you are king of Italy, often you are also emperor, no? B- before Otto. But in order to do that, when they capture the throne, they need to give presents to their supporters. So what they do, they take right. these enormous land, own, land holdings that the, the kingdom has, and they give pieces away. Right. And they give uh, the rights to build castles on it. A certain, mm-hmm. And of course, you, you know, this is famously... In Italian, it's called incastellamento. So when you, you have the... Right. Uh, the tra- because we do not have really castles until after the Carolingian time. So these people, right. that they get these gifts, then they build this castle with the authorization often of, from the king because you need their authorization to build the castle. Right. But then they have a nice wall to protect themselves. If, if the king yeah. ever <laughs> wants to take something back from them, says, come get me, you know? And yeah. we, we see several um, waves of gifts and gifts and gifts until probably... By by the arrival of Otto the first to Italy, the power in a place where where land is power, the power of the king was always his land ownings, not uh, 
the law, not the army. The, the power was right. owning all that land and all that land owning is really reduced. So therefore, the king of Italy is much reduced in power as a, as right. a title. It's just, it becomes very honorific at that point. And, and then, yeah. Well, and the um, having land gave you the law and gave you the army because the, the military system was based on those free men being sort of called up to serve, essentially. And also local lords got to exercise political power, especially once Castlementum got going. So the king, when they owned significant portions of the kingdom of Italy, they were able to call on large militaries by yeah. themselves because they owned the land where the free men exactly. lived. Exactly. They owned the land so that free right. men, you know, it didn't belong to them, but they looked at them. And so, right. of course, they controlled a large portion of the military force. And and that's right. power, you know. And then you have all the income yeah. from that land that you could put to good use uh, as well. Income, yeah. not in money, but, you know, if you have lots of wheat, olive oil right. and wine produced right. on that land that has value huh? uh, also if it's not yeah. monetary value you can exchange for whatever you need weapons right uh, here's wine give me the weapons i mean i'm simplifying but, uh, yeah, but that's about right i mean the the franks were the ones who were producing the best swords so you sent them a bunch of <laughs> olive oil and they <laughs> sent you a bunch of swords exactly so <laughs> land owning is power of the time and it's very clear how yeah. the kings they were always trying to protect those small landowners from the um, from the power of the big landowners, because they knew that right. that that was also a source of power, you know, to uh, to to yeah. be able to present themselves as protector of the small ones. So the small ones, the small landowners, when they need to fight, they will they will answer the call of the king, but not the call of maybe the duke if he wants to rebel against the king. One of my favorite things from reading about. Uh... Berengar's rule. Oh, who let's gets call a, it like a rule. lion share. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> <Yeah>. like... <laughs> he gets so much of the blame, maybe unfairly, but there's just so like the documents of him just giving away the right to collect tolls on specific individual bridges. Yeah. It's like this guy was <laughs> looking under the couch cushions for something to sell. <laughs> At certain point, they start even selling the gates. Yes. <laughs> they say. Uh, the city gate has a toll, so we'll give it to this family that will collect the toll. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just a it's just a very strong privatization of the land. So, yeah, and this is a it's almost yeah. a yard sale of the government. A yard sale of <laughs> just... the government, and that's exactly <laughs> it. And you know, I know that um, Wickham, Chris Wickham, is one of your favorite right. sources, and he has an incredibly good book. Uh, early, early medieval Italy. I will suggest this yes. one is a great book. Uh, Italian historians are very mad that they didn't make it them, themselves. <laughs> They're very jealous. I, I read a lot of Italian historians and they say, ah, like Chris Wickham says, and you can say he's the only one that is not Italian that they quote and say, ah, we really have to uh, quote this damn <laughs> Englishman, but he wrote such a good book, we yeah. cannot avoid it. So anyway, yeah, um, yeah and, and he says one important thing, because then in the 11th century, 12th century, sorry if I go a little bit ahead, but this will be relevant for the investiture crisis. 
the cities will reassert, the Italian cities will reassert their total control on the Italian land, which they had up until the ninth century. So the right. time for Italy, the time of the domination of lords is the narrowest in the Western world. Mm-hmm. The, the right. lords, the country lords, you know, that you could say in England, they're still the most important people. But, you know, <laughs> most European countries, they remain the most important political force at the very least until the, the modern uh, era, sometimes up, up until right. the French Revolution. In Italy, they are really important only between the 10th century and the 12th century, only two centuries. Because before mm-hmm. is all about cities and after is all about cities. Uh, and, and, right. and basically what will happen is that in those two centuries, you have all this land that the king gave away and they become basically fiefdom uh, that people right. keep and you know the kings and emperors are not able to take away. Uh, but then what happens in the late 11th, early 12th century, that in each city, the population of the city wrestles away the control of the city from the bishop, and they set up governments. These are the communes, the Italian communes. Right. And the first thing they do is they try to reassert then immediately the control of the city on all the surrounding landownings which they belong mm-hmm. to that city in antiquity. So usually, right. I will tell you this, usually an Italian province, so Italy is divided in about 100 provinces, right? Usually an Italian province has the same borders of the communes or similar. And the right. communes have similar borders to the old Roma municipia. So there's a strong continuity. <laughs> and so what they, the communes, yeah. they do, they, you know, if you are from... I will say Parma or Bologna or Florence. Uh, they will go and they will go to the, this nobleman that got their deeds from Berengar. <laughs> and they right. say, what do you want to do? Do you want to become uh, uh, a member of the city, you know, and sit in the council and you'll be important, you know, you, you, can, you can be, and you have yeah. to build a house in the city of, of Florence and be, and be here. Or do you want us to, make war, wage war to you and take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some, some, move, uh, some move in the city, some fight, but over a few decades, the cities will yeah. basically uh, reassert control on, uh, over the land of Italy. And of course, there's some merging going on there. Eh? The nobleman becomes yeah. then uh, important politicians. In the in, right. in the life of of the communes, yeah, the people running the commune government are major landowners themselves in the surrounding yeah, areas. Big so. merchants too. Sometimes it's a more yeah. a bit more sophisticated uh, economy mm-hmm. at by that time. So there's yeah. also merchants, but but we start seeing bankers too. Yes, uh, but yes. but yes, landowning always helps. Like one of the big enemies of Dante is Farinata de Uberti. And he's a big right. landowner uh, around Florence. And remind me, are, are we talking before or after the First Crusade at this point? So the communes are af- mostly after. I think the f- after, very first right. ones they may be just slightly before. Okay, but we, yeah, you already had the city states in Italy before the communes. The most important one right. is Venice. 
So Venice, sometimes they say it's a commune, but it's really not. Uh, Communes, so the difference is this. Communes are heirs of Lombard Italy. Venice is a daughter of empire. Venice is the daughter of the Byzantine empire, if anything. Uh, But, and it was part of that other Italy, the Byzantine Italy, not Lombard Italy. The Lombard cities, I think I said this in the show at some point, I consider them just places where you store rich people. Like, that's the main (laughs) basis of their economy. (laughs) For a long time, it's true. For a long time, I mean, Lombard Italy, I mean, first of all, we're talking about cities and probably medieval cities. We have an image of these uh, uh, rich medieval cities. The Lombard time, we're really not talking about that. There are cities that are recognizable because they have the walls, usually. They have the walls around and inside there's a, a gutted Roman city. <laughs> That's what, <laughs> what it is. But but it's still a city. And it's still a place where yeah. you have wealthy people. And it is true. However, yes. in late medieval time that's not true anymore right the economy gets going to a certain and so that's sort of spoilers for everybody but when you get to the communes that's sort of the uh the power of the aristocracy as pure landowners is broken down as the economy diversifies and you get bankers merchants merchants something you never saw before you have these Medici. Mm-hmm. What, what are they? Bankers become popes. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is that? How is that possible? So, and all that uh, starts really in the late uh, medieval time. And this really one yeah. of the best boom period of all time in pre-industrial. This is, I really get frustrated when they say me- medieval, the middle ages is the dark ages. Yeah. I imagine you do too. <laughs> it says like, one of the best time f- uh, f- pre, of course, pre-industrial age for, for world economy. And I'm talking world economy because this is also compared sure. to China, compared to everywhere. Also, yeah. China has a really good time before the Mongols. But but right. this time, 1,000 to uh, uh, 1343 to be <laughs> uh, is yeah, really a, like sure. a boom town, a boom time. Yeah. And uh, uh, we see these cities that they lived comfortably and with a lot of space within the Roman walls. So the Roman walls mm-hmm. from, they were usually built in the late Roman empire in the third century. And they, their Italian cities lived comfortably within them with, with space to spare until right. the year around the year 1000, a little bit 1000. And, right. but then we see every city starts building a wall and then another wall and then another right. wall. And, right. and if, if you look at the size of Florence in, in, you know, the size of the walls of the 14th century compared to the one in the Roman time is like Florence is right. like a, a metropolis compared. And the funny thing is, that yeah. Florence then will sit comfortably within those walls until the 19th century. <laughs> so, <laughs> because and yes. the population of Italian cities reaches a peak before the Black Death and then right. really doesn't change that much until the 19th century. So Milan, yeah. for example, was a huge city for the time. I had 150,000 probably, maybe even 200,000 people in before the Black Death. And we'll still yeah. have the same population in the 19th century. The same is true for Venice. Another 200,000 yeah. city uh, 
again, and we're talking 200,000 uh, people in the, yeah. in, again, estimations, you can say 100, 200, you never know the exact, but it's a big city for the time. Mm-hmm. It's a very large, these are all very large cities for the time. Uh, and But the roots are in the early medieval time because the Italian cities never really uh, declined as much as uh, above the Alps. They, there was always yeah. something there to rebuild after from. One interesting thesis that I've heard that is an explanation as to why sort of the transition started between landed aristocracy being stored in cities, then going over to like actual service economy kind of situation that the the aristocracy all went to the Crusades and got killed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the case of Italian cities, there were some Italian cities that made an awful lot of money out of the Crusaders, actually. Yes. So, so that was, yeah, the aristocracy of above the Alps went to fight and died in the Holy Land. And the Italians... They got a lot of money out of paying. They, they had they needed ship usually for travel, yeah. uh, or they needed supplies, uh, and yeah. then you know they needed financial services as well. Uh, so and they mm-hmm. created them for them, and so um, right. so Italy at the time was a very different beast from yeah. from from the rest of Europe. The closest thing was Flanders, let's say. The, right, the closest right. thing to Italy was Flanders, north of the Alps. But Italy at the time, there was a basis there. There was some, yeah. even before the boom, some trading always there, some connection to the Mediterranean Sea, always there. At a small right. scale, but always there. And then when the traffic started booming, for after in the boom time, that's where the wealth accumulated. And then, yes, they sold yeah. uh, all those services to the Crusaders. They got land out of the Crusades yeah. as well. They, That's they true. got yeah. emporium. Even more important, they got emporium's rights, uh, trading rights in the Byzantine Empire, in the Arab world too. So yeah. they started accumulating yeah. that wealth. And then you have cities like Milan and Florence, which do not have the access to the sea. So you could say that for the mari- so-called maritime republics. Now you have Genoa, Pisa, Amalfi, Venice, smaller ones like uh, Ancona, Gaeta, Bari, those are cities that live off sea trade. But then you have inland towns like cities like uh, Florence and Milan, and they specialize in industry. And so they start, Florence is the, you know, the source of wealth that then feeds into the banking sector is actually textiles. And so they have this industry that they get going, uh, making textiles. And they right. they make it so well that they can sell it uh, all over Europe, and they make an awful lot of money out of it. Milan makes weapons and a lot of other stuff. Also, Venice makes stuff, mm-hmm. and it's not only trade. Yeah. But so they start making stuff that Europe appreciates. They make money out of it, and then you have money, you can lend money, and then you there you have a banker. Yeah. So right. so so actually the history of that. And then again, this is not the area of my specialization, and I don't want to sugarcoat right. it, but I will say, yeah. because of course, there must be also a lot of <laughs> exploitation yeah. going on. Oh, of we course, know yeah. of a strike, very famous strike of the uh, textile workers, Tumulto dei Ciompi, 
in the yes. 14th century in Florence. They do a strike, mm-hmm. all the workers. So we even start seeing things that we connect to the industrial age happening in that time because yeah. we we see this, this industrial sector in Italy that, okay, it's not industrial revolution level, but it is definitely well beyond anything the Romans even had. So it's kind of a, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. They're, they're sort of hitting those pre or proto industrialization, social organization features that you get in, you know, the rest of Europe over the next couple of centuries that uh, I'm going to be talking yeah, about. No, I bet you you do. I mean, because <laughs> the, 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 that Italy was advanced compared to the rest of Europe and yeah. richer too. Uh, at the time, was much richer and yes. advanced. It's not gonna last, yeah. <laughs> but that's uh, that's uh, the situation, <laughs> and that fed, of course, all this bourgeois government uh, of the city communes. Which, yes, they had landowners, but they had also lots of merch. And the border between the two are uh, they're fine. In Venice, yeah, in reality, until they conquered the land empire, which they did in the 15th century, they really all the noblesmen yeah. were merchants. So it's it's very, very interesting. Venice has this, this aristocracy of merchants. And uh, it's really like the yeah. what you would imagine. And uh, and Venice, Venetian history is just so fascinating. Uh it's so different from everything else in Italy, also. It's 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 its yeah. own thing. It's really, it's really weird. weird. <laughs> they have this government, which is a constitutional government from, I would say, from the 13th to 18th century, using the same constitution in a sort of way of aristocratic uh, republic. There's no democratic at all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but but they right. have the same form of government for a long time, and it's very different from the rest of Italy, and they don't care about the evolution of, of, Itali- of Italy at the time. They just do always their own thing. Yeah. Uh, so, so, but that's yeah. another story. So, um, we've covered a lot of time, <laughs> but, uh, thank you so much for doing this. This was a fun chat and, um, I think everybody learned a lot, both in terms of the, the detailed stuff around the Senate and, uh, sort of the nice spoilers <laughs> for what's coming. I think spoilers, everyone's going to have a... No, but first of all, thank you, Ben, <laughs> uh, I was really looking forward to talk to you. And I will say that I am amazed about the job you have done so far because I, oh. I, I don't, there's not stuff in Italian covering well things uh, how you did. Uh, and uh, and oh. also I will say Italians themselves don't know that part of their history. So, so, so you, so you, I, I say, okay, <laughs> I will send some listeners your way because I think they can learn a lot of things. Oh, <laughs> great. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, hello to any of Marco's <laughs> listeners who have come over at this point by the time this is uh, published and, um, all right. Well, thank you so much. This was a, a lot of Likewise. fun and, um, we should probably wrap up before exactly. Zencaster kicks us off. Exactly. I had 12 minutes <laughs> still. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, man. You want to become an importer? Oh, hi. You have a yeah. visitor of the cat. <laughs> Duncan has joined us. Uh, <laughs>
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.